I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Well, both sides of the aisle are shouting loudly, loudly about voter rights, about voting. Uh, is this just one more fake fight and false choice or a shiny object, uh, or are they on to something that actually matters? Uh, the important thing is we get to the right issues as it relates to voting rights, and here to help us do that is Yuval Levin, who is the Director of Constitutional Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, uh, truly one of the great thinkers and writers in our country today. And uh, Yuval, you had a, a great piece in the New York Times uh, talking about voter rights not being the problem that really both the left and the right are screaming about. Yeah, thanks very much, Gordon. I, I think that's right. A lot of the debates we have are about voting itself, about who can vote, when, how, when, in fact, it's easier to vote now than ever in America, and there's very little access and integrity are both in decent shape. There may be some room to think about changes in what happens after voting, the kind of integrity of the process of certification and counting. But that's not what we've been debating. And the debates we've had where Democrats want uh, easier access to the ballot, Republicans want more security measures, are not likely to get us anywhere and also ultimately are not directed to real problems. Yeah. And so let's, let's break that down just a little bit. Let's uh, let's start with the Democratic argument there of, of really trying to expand uh, who can vote and when and where and extending the time. Uh, tell us where that really is. What's the reality in terms of the arguments they're making about uh, about that access? I mean, look, I, Democrats, on the one hand, are trying to persuade people that the United States is in the midst of some kind of repressive era of, uh, of voter suppression. In fact, not only because of COVID, although also because of COVID and various accommodations, it is easier to vote everywhere in America than it was uh, 10 and 15 years ago. There are longer periods of voting before Election Day. Mail-in voting is much more widespread than it used to be. There's now access to absentee ballots uh, without cause anywhere, pretty much. Um, there's even drive-in voting in some states. I mean, it's much easier. It's easier to register. Uh, what they're what they're looking at in some of the states now in particular, efforts to roll back some of the COVID-era accommodations uh, in Texas and Georgia and a few other places. But even there, you're looking at a return to, you know, 2018, which was not a dark time for American democracy. And so a lot of this is just overwrought. It's overstated. I will say one interesting thing about it. 
the, the arguments that both Democrats and Republicans are making are rooted in the premise that higher turnout will help Democrats and hurt Republicans. Mm-hmm. And that premise is wrong, too. It is actually not true that higher turnout elections uh, tend to lean left. There's a lot of evidence now, 50 years' worth of elections, show that turnout does not have a partisan valence. Both parties win elections with high turnout and low turnout. It's not turnout that determines the outcome. And so even the cynical motives in these debates, where Republicans want to reduce turnout, Democrats want to increase it, are actually not well-founded. And ultimately, partisan efforts to change election rules are very bad for the public's confidence in the outcomes of our elections. And I think that's where we have to be focused is on public confidence. That's yeah. the only real crisis of elections we're looking at. Yeah, I think that is such a big, uh, big issue that we're not getting to in any of these debates, uh, the transparency and the trust uh, that the American people have yeah. in the system. And I, I think the fact that both left and right uh, seem to me anyway to be screaming <laughs> to their bases, don't trust the election unless we win – uh, that's just further exactly. undermining that confidence. Yeah, I mean, we're looking at a situation where both parties are telling their voters there's these laws we want to pass to change the system. If they don't pass, you can't trust the elections. They're implicitly saying to the other party, if they do pass, you can't trust the elections. We've got to be very careful about pure party line changes to election rules. And right now, you know, that's what's being pushed. The Democrats have the smallest congressional majority in the history of our country. And they're trying to push a nationalization of election rules in all 50 states. It's not a good idea. Yeah. And so as you look at that, what are some of the things that could both get some bipartisan support and some things that actually could help uh, in terms of that trust and transparency? Well, I think the place to start is the Electoral Count Act of 1887, which is a federal law that governs the role of Congress and the vice president in certifying the results of a presidential election. Uh, You know, that count happens on January 6th after election years. And so it happened a year ago today. That's what was going on in the in the Capitol when the building was attacked. Um, And that that law, which was written in response to the very, very messy election of 1876, um, is convoluted and vague and needs to be clarified. It should be clear that the counting of presidential election results should happen only in the states. And the only role that Congress has is certifying the result of the Electoral College vote. The vice president doesn't have any say over anything. He just opens the envelopes and you count what's in them. And that's got to be made a lot clearer so that we don't have a confusing situation in the wake of an election where Congress seems like it has a role to play. I think that's a place to start. You could definitely get some bipartisan agreement on that. The Democrats insist that's not enough because they want to see changes in election rules. But I think that's a place to begin. There are also some smaller steps that you could take to help people feel more confident in election outcomes. You could create a uniform process, for example, for uh, for post-election audit or a, a kind of transparency model for what elections can look like. I think Congress needs to be careful doing that because elections need to be run at the state level. But there is some role for Congress in having some oversight over federal elections. And those kinds of more modest post-election things stand a chance of getting some bipartisan support. Yeah, I know there were some uh, you mentioned in your New York Times piece, uh, the Freedom to Vote Act, of course, uh, sponsored by uh, Joe Manchin, yeah. uh, that had some things in there, but it it also seemed 
to me anyway, and, and you pointed this out in your in your piece, is that it also had a lot of the other very sweeping big things that just really sort of doom it uh, in terms of actually becoming law. Absolutely. The, the Freedom Vote Act, which is the most modest of the three Democratic election bills and the one that has Joe Manchin's support, is still, I think, way too aggressive. And it's almost intentionally so in order to keep Republicans off the bill. I have to say, I, I think the ultimate motive here is actually to undermine the filibuster in the Senate. They want to create a situation where there's a lot of pressure for an election bill. Manchin supports it. Cinema supports it. And then other Democrats can tell them, look, it's not going to pass unless you kill the filibuster. And that's where they want to end up. That bill does have some of the ideas I'm talking about here, but it also has various kinds of requirements for, uh, f- for example, for, for giving uh, convicted felons the right to vote back, which is up to the states and should be up to the states, all kinds of campaign finance rules uh, and various kinds of registration requirements. Uh, you know, same-day registration would be required in every state. These are just questions that should not be decided by Congress. They don't belong there. And that's a bill that's not going to get a single Republican vote and shouldn't. Yeah, and uh, fascinating stuff as we look at this. And uh, again, I, uh, if you haven't read uh, Yuval's piece in the New York Times, uh, we'll put a link to that uh, on our social feeds today. Uh, it's a great read. It's really important, thoughtful uh, look at we, we have to be careful of these shiny objects and these uh, fake fights and false choices. Uh, and we also have to be careful when things all get conflated. When you take a day like today, January 6th, and suddenly you've connected it to voter rights and the filibuster uh, those are all three very different things. How do we get past that kind of uh, functioning uh, in our nation's capital? Yeah, I mean, I think it's exactly right. And ultimately, it's it's an argument for the importance of the filibuster, to my mind, because the way we get over this is that the only thing that's going to pass is something that can get some bipartisanship. So the Democrats can talk about this stuff all they want. If they continue to push these bills, they won't pass anything, and they'll get nothing done. If instead they say, let's find something that can get a dozen Republicans on board, then they'll end up with a more plausible piece of legislation. That's actually the logic of the filibuster, is that a small minority and the, a small majority, and the Democrats don't even have a majority. They have 50 votes in the Senate. They can only win votes with the vice president's help. <clears throat> that kind of tiny majority should not be imposing its will on, on uh, the minority of uh, voters in this country. And by requiring some participation from the minority party, you're just likely to end up with better legislation. I think this whole thing is an example of exactly why the filibuster is valuable and important. Yeah. Uh, Great insight, as always. Yuval Levin, uh, Director of Constitutional Studies at American Enterprise Institute. Great piece in The New York Times. Uh, Again, truly one of the great thinkers and writers in our country today. Yuval, thanks for making time for us today. Thank you very much for having me. All right, we'll step aside for one last commercial break. When we come up, we'll round out the show today. Stay with us here on KSL News Radio. We'll be right back. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless. And I will never understand it. I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, 
and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.